I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 11. We're going to be in 14 through 26. I want to say a warm welcome to all our folks downstairs. I just got a chance to say hi to them. All of our folks online, thanks for joining us this morning. Kelly and I first moved into town in 1980. Uh, we had a garden apartment in Annandale. It was nice. It wasn't too fancy, but we had a nice bedroom apartment. It was great starting out living space for us. We'd been there a couple months, and we noticed there were bugs, roaches. And you know, we're trying, you know, we're spraying and we're doing this sort of thing, and we're having a hard time getting rid of them. And it was like the longer we went on, the more there seemed to be. So I figured I was going to take care of this. I was a man of the world. I had experience in this sort of thing. And one day when Kelly went to work, uh, I ran over to the giant across the street from us, and I bought eight fogging canisters. Now, we had a one-bedroom apartment. I figured if, if we get enough fogging canisters in here, these things are bound to die. So I set them off and went to work. I was working across the street from, uh, from the giant. And uh, at, at about 3 o'clock, I thought, I'm going to go home and clean things up because I know Kelly doesn't like bugs. And I didn't want her coming home from work and seeing all these bugs all over the place. So I went into the apartment, and I, I was absolutely shocked. I was actually overwhelmed with the number of dead roaches that were in our apartment. I went over back to the giant and got bags, back when they had paper bags, remember those? And a snow shovel and a broom. I filled five bags with dead roaches. And I thought, wow, that takes care of that. I had no idea we had that many. Well, we lived over the trash room. And, it, you know, a few weeks later, I saw a roach, and then I saw another one, another one. And next thing I know, we're absolutely infested again. And that's when I realized our truth for today is that a clean house can be dangerous. A clean house can be dangerous. I want to talk to you about what we fill our house with. The last time we were in Luke was in uh, December 13th. And we do that every now and then. We'll take a break from our ongoing series. We're going to be in Luke for some time. Uh, and we'll do holidays or maybe there's some events that we need to talk about, that sort of thing. So it's been a, a little over a month. But that sermon ended with a promise, and it was based on ask, seek, and knock. And the concept was that we, we ask for his kingdom to come. We seek our daily bread, uh, both physical and spiritual. And then we knock, we take positive action by asking for forgiveness for our daily sin and being forgiving as much as we have been forgiven. And the promise was that if we are faithful to do all that, that God will show us and give us the kingdom, that we can live in the kingdom even now while we're waiting for Christ to come back. So in doing that, we can avoid living apart from him and living in the shame of being separated from God. Today we're going to talk about the consequences of being separated from God. So, uh, this is a clean house. This is part 31 of our ongoing series in Luke, God's Love for Everyone. And I just want you to watch as we go through this, because I, I, I chose the name for the series carefully, 
It is God's love for everyone. So God loves his creation. He loves every individual that he created. And how many people did he create? Everyone. He created everyone. Now, there are consequences for rejecting him. God grieves over that, but God loves everyone, and we're called to love everyone as well. So we're going to see how this clean house uh, works out today in three encounters that Jesus has with the Pharisees. And the first one is in a fallacy, uh, which is verses 14 through 16 of Luke 11. The second one is in the folly of that fallacy in 17 through 23. And the third one is in the fate of those who embrace the fallacy, 24 through 26. So let's take a look at our first encounter. Uh, And this is with the crowd and with the Pharisees, starting in verse 14. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. And when the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. Now we can see this same incident in Matthew chapter 9. And the people around Jesus see what Jesus does. Now, Luke doesn't go into a lot of detail, but we've seen Jesus encounter demons before. And generally what he does is he recognizes them, he calls them by name, they acknowledge him, and in, you know there might be some exchanges in there that go back and forth. But ultimately, we find out that Jesus has authority over the demons. And when he tells them to leave, they have to leave. So we have to assume that that's what's happened with this mute man. And when he began speaking, the demon had been cast out. The crowd, and this is important, the crowd marvels. They are awestruck. And technically, they are struck with admiration and wonder. They knew the man. They knew that he couldn't speak. They knew that he was demon-controlled. And they see the demon get cast out, and they're, and they're standing going, oh, look at this. This is really something. Matter of fact, if you take a look in Matthew, the crowd says, could this be the son of David? And what they're saying is, could this be the Messiah? They see a good and godly thing done. But there's trouble. Verse 15. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Now again, if we go back to Matthew, we find out that the some who said this are a group of Pharisees that bring this slanderous accusation. And I want you to look at the nature of what they've said, what's underneath it. They're saying, this is not the work of God. This is the work of the devil. Now we need to think about this for a few minutes. The Pharisees are judging Jesus Christ. So they're not just judging Jesus Christ. They're judging the work that God is doing. Now, in order for them to do that, they have to feel more righteous than Jesus Christ. They have to feel superior. Not only, and, and, and see, and this is what the problem has been all along. They, they feel superior. They feel better. They feel wiser. And matter of fact, they, we've gotten to the point by the first century in Palestine that only the Pharisees can tell when God is working. And only, only they can have this discernment. And, and, and if it's not coming from them, then it's not God. Watch what's happening here. Only they, they are the only arbiters of God's truth. 
And if they don't say it's true, then it's not. So that self-righteous attitude has always been what gets God's people in trouble. That feeling of superiority, that feeling of having a handle on who God is, that feeling that God is on my side, but he's not on your side. And that's exactly what happens here. And, and now that's bad enough, but watch what happens with the crowd. It causes the crowd to start making demands. 16, while others to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Again, we find out this is the crowd. So the fallacy is that Jesus is working with Satan. The, the, the crowd goes, wow! The Pharisees go, no, 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 that's not God. That, that, that's the work of the devil. Now the crowd doesn't know what to do. They, have, they, they, they fall victim to the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. And that self-righteousness has bred confusion and maybe caused some anger to rise up. The crowd doesn't know who to believe. I mean, the Pharisees are their spiritual leaders. They're supposed to be. But they've just seen Jesus Christ do this miracle. And the fact of the matter is that the crowd has all the evidence they need to see the good work that Jesus just did. They have all they need to make their own determination. And, and if they're going to be objective about it, they can see the anger and the arrogance of the Pharisees. But if even if they don't want to be objective, they have the Scriptures to guide them. And, of course, we're talking about the Old Testament. But those scriptures tell them, number one, vengeance is mine, says God. It's not theirs. Deuteronomy 32, 35. It says, don't be haughty and associate with the lowly. Jeremiah 45, 45. Now, when, when we hear, don't be haughty and associate with the lowly, lowly, we think, oh, don't be haughty, associate with the poor people, the people that don't have as much as you do. But really what the scriptures tell them is that don't look down on anybody. Associate with those that you're feeling more superior to. It'll be healthy for you. Scripture says, never be wise in your own sight. Proverbs 3, 7. Never feel like you're smarter than the people that you're looking at. Scripture says, don't repay evil with evil. Proverbs 20, 22. Aren't we surrounded by this stuff right now? Aren't we surrounded by people telling us that we're smarter than other people, that, that they've done this, so we need to do that? We need to take vengeance. We need to take retribution. We need to get this back. We need to get that back. Don't associate with those people. They are below you. They had the same guidelines. And they should have known better. But because of the influence of the Pharisees, the evidence that they see now the evidence in the scriptures is not enough. Now the crowd wants Jesus to prove that he's from God. You see what just happened? The crowd was awestruck. It's amazing. No, it's not. This is bad. 
Is it bad? I didn't think it was bad, but it must be. This sounds good. So they go from being awestruck to questioning, to aligning themselves. And who are they aligning themselves with? A group of self-righteous leaders. They're saying, everybody's wrong but me. So the crowd ignores the evidence in front of them and embraces the accusations. They embrace the anger and the arrogance that's coming from the Pharisees. They embrace their leaders instead of their Savior. Now Jesus knows. He knows what they've seen. He knows what they've heard. He knows it's all a fallacy. And by the way, Webster says that a fallacy is a misleading or unsound argument. It's not logical. So he brings a voice of reason to his comments, pointing out the folly of their thinking. That's our second encounter is the folly. Verse 17. But he, knowing their thoughts, that should scare us. I, I mean, just think about it. Jesus knows their thoughts, and he knows our thoughts. That should cause us to sober up a little bit and go, wait a minute, God knows what I'm thinking. So Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. So what advice do we have for today? Because the world is divided over almost everything, is it not? We see all this division, all this tension, ethnic group against ethnic group, political party against political party, ideology against ideology, nation against nation, mask wearers against no mask wearers. You name the issue, folks are divided over it. Where does all this tension and where does it lead? We, we take a look around us and we can see it. We can feel it. It's palpable. It's impacting our lives. Well, Jesus tells us where that type of division leads. Verse 18, And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? It leads to collapse. Jesus admonishes the crowd and the Pharisees. He's telling them, what you're saying doesn't make sense that Satan's kingdom is fighting against his kingdom. No kingdom that fights against itself is going to last. Then he goes on to say, For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, he says, if you say I'm in league with Satan, when I cast out a demon, if you say I'm in league with Satan when I cast out a demon, tell me this, to whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Well, it's a little bit of a confusing verse, isn't it? Who are the sons? You know what? You can dive deep as you want to in the language, and it's really not clear who the sons are. I'm not sure it matters. We know this. We know that the Jews have witnessed exorcisms. And that happened long before Jesus came. They're their, their priests and, and their rabbis would do exorcisms. And they believe them, when they see them, they believe them in all cases to be the work of God. Now, whether it's by the work of the prominent Jews or whether it's by the recent work that they've seen in the disciples' life, they've seen these things work. 
And Jesus is saying, I know you've seen this before. I know that you've seen it before that you think that the power to cast out demons is from God. And if you think that, how do you explain this accusation you just made to me? Why are all these others casting out demons in the name of God, and when I do it, it's in the name of Satan? He said, it doesn't make sense. He says, make your acceptance of them and your rejection of me be the judgment that falls upon you. He said, be careful. Because in verse 20, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This is an allusion to Exodus chapter 8, verse 19. The pagan magicians are trying to match Moses toe to toe when the plagues come. Moses produced gnats and they can't do it. And then the magician said to Pharaoh, Exodus 8, 19 says, this is the finger of God. He's trying to remind, Jesus is trying to remind the crowd that they've seen this before. They've seen it in their scriptures. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he could not listen to them as the Lord had said. So what Jesus is trying to say, be careful here, because if my power comes from God, then the kingdom has come near and you are rejecting it. Don't harden your hearts the way that Pharaoh did. You know how that ended up. Then he goes in this analogy. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Now we have to understand the context to understand everything that's happening here. Jesus is accused of working with Satan. He asserts that what he brings comes with the kingdom of God. They all know the demons are from Satan. And they're watching Jesus cast out demons. And Jesus uses this image of a strong man who is overthrown by an even stronger man. And the implication is that Satan is the strong man and that Jesus is the stronger man. Now, Elder... Ristow and I saw something very similar to this, a great example of what Jesus is talking about when we were in Argentina in 1999. We were setting up a, a little trailer, had a mariachi band playing, we were going to play some music, and we were in this barrio neighborhood, and people were kind of milling about trying to figure out what was going on, and our plan was to play some music and then preach the gospel and pray for people. So while we're doing all the setup, Peter and I are standing there, and we had a group of Argentinians were with us. They were translators. And Peter noticed three guys standing out on the periphery of everything we were setting up. And they're three big guys just kind of standing there like this, just watching us. And so he said, hey, who are those guys? What are they doing? And the translator said, watch this. Those are the strong men of the neighborhood. Well, what is that? They have authority over this. This is their area. And they are watching to see who's stronger, your God or them. By the end of the day, one of those men was laying on his face in front of the altar, crying out to Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus is saying. There's no strength greater than him. 
And when he comes up against evil, it can't stand. Then in Mark 9.40, well, we hear this in, in verse 23, I'm sorry. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So he's kind of putting a cap on this here. And it sounds like another saying that Jesus uttered in Mark when John complains that there are other folks that are casting out demons and they're not with the group. Folks who are not part of the group. Jesus says, for the one who is not against us is for us. Now again, the phrases sound the same, but they're exactly the opposite. In Mark, Jesus is trying to say, if they're working for the kingdom, they are not against us. Live with those guys in peace. Don't go complaining about how they're casting out demons. Worry about this group right here. Here in Luke, he's saying, if they're not with me, if they reject me, they are against me, and they will be scattered. And here we see this accusation, Jesus' response, and right here we see that the presence of Jesus Christ always demands an answer. It always demands a response. You can't ignore him. You're either with him or against him. There is no in-between. There is no, he's not my God. There is no, no, I'm not going there. I'm not standing before anybody's judgment seat. Jesus demands an answer. He points out the folly of the Pharisees and the eternal folly of those who reject him. Then, then he describes their fate. This is our third encounter, the fate. Those who have had the demons cast out, indeed, the fate of all those who reject them. Verse 24. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places. This is barren, dry, empty places. Seeking rest. Seeking a place to stay. This is what rest meant. A place to stay while you did your work. So the demon's looking for someplace else to occupy. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Now, the image that the Jews would have seen that it is clean and empty. It's in order. There's nothing out of place. There's plenty of room in the house, just like the apartment that we had in Annandale. Verse 26, then it goes, watch this, and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and they dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. Jesus is saying what happens is this. Jesus cleans. He cleanses. The person had a demon. He was consumed by it. He was filled with the demon. He was controlled by the demon. And now, now he's empty. And if he stays that way, the demon will return and bring more with him. There will be more evil than there was before. This is is Jesus cautioning those who are filled with evil to empty themselves, but to receive him to be filled with Him, leaving no room for demons or evil. In other words, to be transformed from a vessel for evil into a vessel for Christ. Filled with the Holy Spirit. 
That should cause us to ask ourselves, what am I filled with? We had these three encounters. The, the fallacy of the accusations, misrepresentation that Jesus is doing evil. I, I got to tell you, that's the way the culture sees you and me. There was an image in USA Today about the the goings-on last Wednesday down at the Capitol. And in the middle of USA Today's pictures was a picture of a hooded guy. He was dark. He had these gloves on that looked like skeleton hands. He's holding a book that says in giant letters, Holy Bible. And there's absolute chaos going on behind him. See, that's the accusation that society is levying upon the church. That's what we look like to them. So we need to understand that. We need to understand, and and what do we do about it? We'll get to that in just a second. But we need to understand that that's how the culture sees the church. The way the Pharisees were accusing Christ. No, that's of the devil. So, We've seen this folly. The evidence shows that Jesus is working against Satan, not for him. What evidence are we showing that we're working with Jesus, not Satan? Just things we need to consider. And the ultimate fate of those who are working against Jesus, those who reject him, are empty and in danger of being filled with evil themselves. So, I, I, don't worry, I don't worry about, uh, about our folks here, those people that know Jesus Christ, that have repented of their sins, that have accepted Him as Lord and Savior. I don't worry that you're going to be filled with evil. But there are a lot of people out there that don't know what to do. There are a lot of people out there that are confused. And they're hearing this, and they're hearing this. And, you know, I've told you before, there are two groups of people in the world. There are people who have Christ and people who need Christ. The only two groups of people. When we get into eternity, it's going to be the only thing that matters. Did you have Christ or did you need Christ? Did you reject Him or did you receive Him? And we need to be the light that that reaches out to those people and says, you you can have peace. You, You don't have to be confused. You don't have to be angry. You don't have to be frustrated. You can walk in peace and rest. And you can have an eternal home with God forever. That's the light that we're supposed to be. We have been sent to give the message of salvation. We have not been sent to give the message of the Democrats or the Republicans or the Libertarians or the nations. We're we're not sent to be ambassadors of the United States. We are ambassadors of the true and living God. We've been put, that charge has been put upon us. I saw the damage that can be done by chasing the roaches out of my house and thinking that the job was done. That apartment, brothers and sisters, can be a picture of our souls. We can clean them up, but if we're not diligent to keep them filled with Christ, who knows what evil will creep back in. A clean house can be dangerous. A clean house can be dangerous. For those who need Christ, maybe you're listening today 
Maybe you've never accepted Christ. Maybe you know that your house needs to be cleaned. And that's easy enough to do. You can stop doing this. You can stop doing that. But the question is, what will you fill that emptiness with? For those who know Christ, we're filled with the Holy Spirit. Amen! We're saved. Amen! We're going to heaven. Amen! But it's easy. It's easy, brothers and sisters, to create a crowd in the house. It's easy to squeeze in some anger. It's easy to squeeze in some self-righteousness or maybe some fear or maybe frustration. And the problem is that those things begin to take over and the next thing you know, the Holy Spirit is down in the basement hidden behind the Christmas decorations pulled out on holidays. It's not going to get us kicked out of heaven, but it's going to ruin our witness right here. So the question is, what are you letting, allowing into your house? What are you inviting in along with the Holy Spirit? And how much attention will you give it? What will you pursue? Christ? A high and holy calling? Or some issue that nobody's going to be thinking about 100 years from now? What are you going to do with your clean house? Let's pray. I'd like you to stand, please. I'm going to pray this prayer along with the Puritans. Preserve us, O God, through Christ, the only Master and Teacher of His church. To You be praised forever. God the Father, for Your Son Christ's sake, Show your mercy every time we stray. Reveal our sins to us more and more. Keep us in and lead us to your truth. Show us how to be faithful in everything that we have received. And we have received so much. Whether it be less or more. And preserve us against all the scandals the whole world is filled with. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us from home. We appreciate you. Have a great day.